According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me this morning, if you would, in the book of Philippians. It has finally happened. Philippians. We've spent uh, several uh, weeks now, since New Year's, really, uh, giving an introduction to uh, the prison epistles, what I call the prison epistle preview, P-E-P my pep talks, if you will, for uh, the, the, uh, the groundwork from the book of Acts and the chronology of the Apostle Paul and his ministry, his travels, his writings, that hopefully will uh, benefit us not only for this series, for the Philippian series, but for Colossians and Philemon and Ephesians to follow and uh, to set the uh, stage for these prison epistles. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of, Jesus Christ, of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who were in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God and all my remembrance of you. And uh, really, verse three there spells it out uh, for the purpose and for the background of the book of Philippians. The entire thing, four chapters worth, is essentially a great big thank you letter. It's a, it's a rejoicing, it's a celebration. It is... Um, I think uh, a breath of fresh air in the Apostle Paul's life and ministry that uh, Philippi is not another Corinth, <laughs> all right? That uh, it's not, a, it's uh, with all of the other conflict that's going on with uh, the letters that he had to write to the Corinthians and uh, the imprisonments that he was dealing with and the conflict there in Ephesus, that uh, Philippi was a, uh, a, uh, a testimony to the grace of God and the power of God in, uh, in their participation with him and uh, some of these things we will see here as well. All right, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. All right, well, let's start with prayer, asking the Father to set aside our distractions, to bless our time of study, to bless uh, the ministry of his word on this day. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do come before your throne of grace this morning, thankful for the truth of your word, <clears throat> thankful for this new series, Father, and eager to, uh, to learn the things, Father, that we know are in front of us. Uh, Father, I think everyone in this room has a favorite Bible verse that comes out of Philippians, Father. There's just so many and uh, so much encouragement, so much rejoicing, so, much, uh, uh, so many promises that we claim. We've been claiming them for years. And now we get a chance, Father, to, uh, to study, to show ourselves approved, line upon line, precept upon precept, and uh, anticipating a great feast that is set before us. So thank you for this time this morning, Father. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. I don't know if I'm going to settle my mind on this splash screen or not. I found it uh, in the Logos Bible software, and I really like it a lot. It's kind of nice. Um, but it's also, you can't edit it. It's not a, it's not a typical PowerPoint slide. It's just a, an image. So, um, it's, I kind of like that one too. I adapted that from our Galatians series where you can put the, the title there. I'll decide one way or the other, or maybe I'll use both as, uh, the blue is pretty. I like the blue, but in any event, let's introduce it. Uh, introduction to Philippians and 11 main points that we want to get in the introduction and uh, we'll see uh, how long it takes to, to work through this. Um, I'll either wrap it up in 10 minutes and we'll <laughs> be done or it'll take six weeks and uh, 
something in between. Written by Paul and Timothy. And, uh, of course, it's interesting to track uh, Paul's uh, total uh, collection. And the ones where Timothy is a co-author are the majority of those. All right. Uh, uh, but and here's the case uh, where uh, we have Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus. Different uh, in the sense that in many of Paul's letters, he introduces himself as an apostle. This does not start off with Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, or Paul, an apostle by the will of God, or Paul, an apostle, this or that. Uh, typically, in most of Paul's letters, he does introduce himself as an apostle, citing the apostolic authority, and then he will introduce Timothy or Sosthenes or one of the other co, uh, co-authors. In this case, it's simply Paul and Timothy, bondservants, and uh, no reference to the apostolic authority in, uh, in any respect. And... Uh, Pretty straightforward, even if, even if you don't read Greek, you can read this. Paulos kai timotheos, douloi, that's, our, that's the plural there of doulos, the term for slave. The term for, uh, if, if, I think a bond servant is, uh, is more of a, a, a watered down rendering, but the, the actual slavery as it was practiced in the ancient world, and that's what we're dealing with. Bond servants or slaves of Christ Jesus. And uh, typically it's Jesus Christ. That's the order in most places throughout the New Testament. In a handful of places, the Christos comes first, and that's what we have here, not only in uh, verse 1, but also in verse 2. Or not only in the first expression, uh, servants of Christ Jesus, but then the second part of verse 1, the saints in Christ Jesus. And so the first two references there, it's Christos Jesu in, uh, in both of these places. Um, to all the saints at Philippi. Point two then is the recipients. Point two, to all the saints at Philippi, together with overseers and deacons, including overseers and deacons. We've got a marvelous outline here for the structure of a local church. And we realize that uh, a local church is a subset of the church universal. It is, a, it is a flock. It is a collection of saints. Every believer is a saint. Every believer is a set-apart one, a holy one, made righteous by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so we have the saints. And every believer on the planet, of course, is a saint, is a part of the church universal. But those that are located at a specific locality, in this case, at Philippi, at Ephesus, at Corinth, at so on and so forth, uh, then that represents a local church. A, a, an individual flock that has been entrusted to individual shepherd, to individual overseers and elders in terms of the office capacity. And we'll be dealing with this as, a, as, a, as offices as they're spelled out here. Uh, an overseer is not a shepherd. One is an office, one is a gift, all right? And we want to understand these things also with respect to elder, the terminology of elder that references the maturity status of the, of the overseer or of the shepherd, of the pastor, as we understand it there. Again, it's pretty straightforward. To all the saints, pasen tois hagiois, to all the hagiois, to all the saints. And we are saints in Christ. What a blessing. Not because a Roman church said we're saints or not because a college of cardinals voted on us or, uh, or any other such thing. Uh, we don't worship the saints. We don't hold up the saints as some kind of super Christians. Uh, that, uh, we are all saints made righteous by the blood of Jesus Christ. And we can uh, rejoice in that as well. So when you have a body of saints in a location uh, together with overseers and deacons, what do you have? You have a lampstand. You have a local church. Correct. 
And uh, this is part of what we look at just in terms of definitions and part of what we look at when it comes to uh, how do I know if, if my home Bible study maybe is, is growing into something larger than, than what it's been? How do I know uh, when we're no longer just simply a, a small fellowship or a small uh, Bible study we, we got, that God has actually planted a lampstand? We are now a church. We are now a local church in the, in the plan of God. Well, do you have overseers and deacons? Have you, uh, have you organized in this way? Uh, this part of the, the structure of what it means to be a lampstand, to be a local church in, uh, in the New Testament as we understand it. Now, early on, of course, there was one church per town because that's all there was. Uh, eventually, there started to become multiple flocks within the same town. And uh, we have little glimpses of that throughout the New Testament. Jerusalem had multiple campuses, if you will, or multiple homes in which they met. When you had so many people, they didn't fit in a building uh, depending upon the town and the, the size building that was necessary. So they would meet in homes. They would meet down by a riverside, and we'll see that in Philippi. Uh, they, they met at a riverside for prayer. Different applications there, all right? Um, and what we're going to see in Rome in particular that there were multiple local churches in Rome itself. And so uh, some of those details come into play later in, uh, in the New Testament. Anyway, the issue's there. Third, uh, thirdly, Written during an imprisonment. Written during an imprisonment. And this is what we've spent the last several weeks now dealing with in the pep talks, in the introductory classes. How many imprisonments did Paul have? Which imprisonment? All right. There's no question that it was written during an imprisonment. Traditionally from Rome, alternatively from Caesarea, but much more likely from Ephesus. And that's what we spent recent weeks dealing with. We'll address some of those issues again this morning in, uh, in this. So let's look at these verses here in Philippians. There's no question that he's in prison. Verse 7 of chapter 1. It is only right for me to feel this way about you, to feel this way about you all. Okay. Oh, nice. It's a touchy-feely book. All right. No, it's not. Relax. I'll get to that. It's not a think. It's not a feeling verb. It's a thinking verb. And, uh, the translation there bugs me, so we'll deal with that. It is only right for me to think this way about you all. Because I have you in my innermost being, my cardia, my heart. Since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Notice those are two separate things. The imprisonment and the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Don't confuse the setting for the work assignment because there are actually a couple of work assignments that are taking place. And just being in a bad spot is itself not always the test. Being in a bad spot is often the setting for which the real test then can take place. And, uh, and I think we would do well to, uh, to understand issues with respect to not just you know jail is the obvious one, but how about sickness? A physical health test, a physical health circumstance? May, uh, should we start thinking of a physical health test as not the test itself, but the conditional circumstances in which the real test takes place uh, when, it, when it comes down to that? So we'll have more to say there. But both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers of grace with me. And so wherever Paul is and wherever they are, they're in Philippi, uh, that they are partakers with him. 
that they're able through prayer, they're able through their financial support, they're able through other uh, modes of ministry, they're going to send messengers, they're going to send support. And in all of this, they become partakers, partakers of grace with the Apostle Paul. And so the imprisonment reference is right there in verse 7. We also have it in verse 13. I'll glance down there, uh, reading in verse 12. I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. So he's not complaining about his circumstances. He's celebrating his circumstances. Because without these circumstances, he would have a lesser progress for the gospel. But because of these circumstances, he now has a greater progress for the gospel. There are doors available to him that would not have been available had these circumstances not taken place. So that, purpose clause, my imprisonment in the cause of Christ or my imprisonment in Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. And so the the expansion of the exposure that the gospel uh, receives because of Paul's imprisonment wouldn't have happened without it. Wouldn't have happened in other circumstances. And these are uh, things that are far beyond our puny human capacity to organize, to to plan. Uh, The best we can do is, is recognize it with hindsight after the fact and go, oh, wow, look at that. Look what God did with that. And with hindsight, we can see it. Um, but clearly in, in foresight, who, who among us has the foresight to say, you know what, I want to go to jail tomorrow <laughs> because there's a jailer there in Philippi that needs uh, to hear the gospel. He and his whole household need to hear the gospel. And how would Paul have encountered that Philippian jailer in Acts 16 had he not been wrongfully uh, imprisoned on that night? And so the Philippian church has the background to understand exactly what Paul's talking about. uh, Because one of the people reading this epistle is is who? That Philippian jailer from chapter 16. And so uh, we can see it there. We will do some studies here shortly on the Praetorian Guard and uh, the reference to the Praetorian. Um, Oftentimes it's thought of as as proof that this must uh, be the Praetorian bodyguards of Caesar in Rome itself. Uh, But that puts far more... um, that, that reads far more into the word praetorium than we uh, are able to do in the New Testament. The word praetorium does not demand a setting in Rome. And uh, we'll demonstrate that as well. So he is imprisoned. Uh, verse 14 as well continues to speak of the imprisonment. Most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. And uh, that, that's almost counterintuitive. That's almost backwards, right? We, in human expressions, we might think, ooh, look what the gospel did to Paul, okay? Ooh, I better be more careful. I better be more reluctant to preach the gospel since, you know, look what it did to Paul. It threw him in jail. Instead, it's just the opposite. They are far more emboldened. They see the open doors that are there for Paul. They see that the word of God is not in prison. They see the venue that Paul has and the, and the expanded ministry that Paul has. And uh, so they're emboldened, far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. And um, I don't know about you, but I like um, observing, you know, you read Voice of the Martyrs or you read, you read some of these things. You read the accounts of believers that stay faithful in the midst of their uh, affliction. 
And isn't that encouraging? Isn't it just overwhelming to think that how faithful Jesus is, how his power shines forth, things that are learned and things that are done that wouldn't have been done otherwise? I find it to be a great encouragement, and that's what verse 14 speaks of there as well. There's also a little bit of envy that's happening that we'll deal with in verse 15. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives. You know, there's people in the ministry that are in ministry for all the wrong reasons. And uh, that's nothing new. (laughs) That's not unique to the 21st century or American culture. That's been around since the beginning here. Paul's describing it in his day and age. And yet, and yet, Paul says, I'm able to rejoice in this. Uh, whether it's a pretense or whatever, hey, Christ is preached. Isn't that something? Selfish ambition, rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. Okay, So this is an ongoing circumstance. In other words, as Paul is writing this, um, if, if all we had was verse 7, in my imprisonment and the defense and the confirmation of the gospel, we might think that, well, he had been jailed, but now he's free Uh, We wouldn't really know the time frame. We wouldn't really know the ongoing circumstances. But clearly, from verse 13 to 14 to 17, it's obvious that the imprisonment is now ongoing. And in fact, he doesn't know if he's going to live or if he's going to die. And uh, the rest of chapter 1 then is going to settle on this this question of, you know, what would be better? For me to, to, to die in this or for me to survive this and, and continue on in, in uh, temporal freedom? Chapter 2 and verse 17 is another reference. Even if I am presently right now being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. And so realizing that the present ongoing imprisonment is still a, uh, an active issue as he is penning or writing this, uh, this epistle. Chapter 4 and verse 14. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my <clears throat> affliction. Again, it's an ongoing abiding circumstance that he is writing from. All right, traditionally from Rome, alternatively from Caesarea, but much more likely from Ephesus. And the only objection, I think, or the largest objection that people have related to uh, a possible Ephesian imprisonment is that there's no mention of an Ephesian imprisonment anywhere in Acts 19. All right, Acts 19 is, is the details of Paul's ministry in Ephesus. Uh, one chapter to detail three years of what he did there uh, in Ephesus. Uh, he leaves Ephesus at the beginning of chapter 20, right there in verses 2 and 3, at the very beginning of chapter 20. And so nowhere in Acts 19 does it say that Paul was imprisoned uh, or that he wrote the prison epistles or anything of the sort. And uh, if you've been with us in the recent weeks going through the introduction, you realize that there are many, many things that happened at Ephesus that Acts 19 didn't tell us, all right? And a whole list of things that happened in Ephesus that we learned about from 1 Corinthians being thrown to lions, 2 Corinthians, uh, uh, we find other, other clues in Romans, we find other clues in 1 Timothy, other clues of things that clearly had to have happened in Ephesus, but were not recorded in, uh, in Acts chapter 19. Now, uh, as far as the place of writing, my conclusion is Ephesus. Conclude what you will. Uh, the dating of the epistle 
is dependent upon which imprisonment uh, that you understand for its origin. All right. So um, if it's if it's uh, a Roman imprisonment, well then that's later, right? That's sixty to sixty-two uh, A.D. when he was imprisoned in Rome. If it's a Caesarean imprisonment, well then it's a couple of years prior to sixty. It's fifty-eight to sixty related to uh, to the Caesarean imprisonment. If it's uh, an, an Ephesus imprisonment, then it's during the three years that he was in Ephesus. All right, so we're talking 54 to 57 in that time frame. So the whole scope of it, you know, is, is a window of, of about 10 years. It's a window of eight to 10 years, depending upon which, uh, which location you choose. Um, and, and ultimately, I don't think it matters. It, it, uh, whether it's Ephesus or Rome, whether it's in the 50s or it's in the 60s, uh, the, the applications, the, the, the words are still the words. The four chapters are still the four chapters. The verses are still the verses. Uh, the, the, but the, uh, I think the, 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 what does come alive is the, the, uh, maybe a deeper understanding of 2 Corinthians and a deeper understanding of Romans if you have the, the, the background of the prison epistles to go into those books, all right? And so in, in a sense, we've already, that, that ship has already sailed, right? I've already taught 2 Corinthians and I did not do so with a background of having Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon already in Paul's writings, in Paul's uh, uh, canon, uh, that doctrine available to Paul in the writing of 2 Corinthians. I didn't teach 2 Corinthians that way because I had not yet placed the, uh, the prison epistles in, uh, in an Ephesian context. Praetorium and Caesar's household are frequently cited to prove the place of writing. And uh, we discussed the, uh, the praetorium already from Philippians 1.13. Uh, the, the noun itself speaks of, uh, uh, it's not even a Greek word, but it's borrowed from Latin and it's brought into Greek. Uh, but it does speak of the guards. In fact, where it shows up, uh, we have a praetorium in Jerusalem. We have a praetorium where, Herod, uh, where, uh, where Pilate uh, lives. And the praetorium that's mentioned when they drag Jesus into the praetorium for his trials. All right, so praetorium as a location speaks of a Roman governor's residence. It speaks of the place of, of uh, Roman authority and sovereignty. And so as such, there was one in Jerusalem. There was one in Caesarea. There was one in Ephesus as capital of the province of Asia. Uh, the, the noun itself does not demand a setting in Rome. In fact, nowhere in the New Testament, unless this one, uh, nowhere in the New Testament does the noun praetorium apply to Rome at all. Most of them apply in Jerusalem, uh, and then second to that in, uh, in Caesarea, the uh, praetorium that was there when, during Paul's two years of imprisonment in Caesarea. Likewise, Caesar's household. Chapter 4, there's some greetings that are given, common in many of Paul's letters. Greetings that are given at the end of an epistle. And he says... Um, in verse 21, greet every saint in Christ Jesus, the brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Now, this too, um, people use this to say, oh, well, look at this. Paul was in Rome and he, he even had a, a gospel opportunity with Nero. He had a gospel opportunity with Nero's family members, right? Mrs. Nero, uh, Nero's children, Okay. Maybe they had Paul over for dinner and, and at the dinner table with Nero and Mrs. Nero and the kids, Paul had a chance to give them the gospel. All right, well, we got to get out of our... That's not what household means, not in the ancient world. 
All right? And in particular, Caesar's household, we're not talking about his immediate nuclear family and, and blood relatives and so forth. We're talking about um, his, his slaves. We're talking about the administration of his possessions. And Caesar had property all over the Roman world, and his household had stewards all over the Roman world. Um, stewards, oikonomia, right? The oikonomoi, the, the, the stewards that were managers of his household that supervised all of the slaves in, uh, in every location. So Caesar's household, uh, he had sl- uh, slaves in, in Jerusalem, he had slaves in Ephesus, he had slaves in all of these places. And so it's not at all a, um, a proof text to demand that uh, this letter has to be written from, uh, from Rome. In fact, uh, I think uh, you, you can read it that way, certainly, but all of the other evidence against a Roman origin, I think, are uh, uh, proof. I think it's, it's uh, you have to, when you weigh the, the evidence, and when you say, okay, we have this testimony on this side, this testimony on this side, you say, what evidence weighs heavier? Uh, and if it's a matter of weight, then uh, which direction do the scales tip as, as a matter of probability? And say, well, it's more likely this, it's less likely that. But if there's something that is absolutely a veto, if there's something that is a, a proof against, in other words, a defeater, if there is an, a line of evidence that is an absolute defeater that says that the alternative is not even possible, at that point, it's no longer a, a, a weighing the evidence and laying out the, the probability of likelihood. At that point, you have to remove the other off the table entirely because it's, it's encountered a defeater, see. And uh, the people that think that the praetorium reference or Caesar's household reference are defeaters against an Ephesian origin, uh, that's, that's not correct, all right? And uh, aspects on that. I like the... Um, Lexham Bible Dictionary. Uh, this is, by the way, Lexham is the brand, is the publishing brand of Logos Bible Software. And it's interesting how many of their uh, scholars, how many of their uh, people are actually now, uh, in, not only are they taking reference material and, and putting them in electronic format, right, converting real books to electronic books, but they're also going the other direction as well. They're producing electronic study material that are then finding themselves in print format, that are, that are finding themselves uh, you know, in, in limited ways being sold in uh, brick-and-mortar bookstores and so forth. So Lexham is that publishing brand for Lagos Bible Software. And uh, the Lexham Bible Dictionary is, uh, I'm, I'm beginning to appreciate it more and more in, uh, in my studies. Let me open this up here. And you may find other sources as well, uh, secular uh, encyclopedias related to Philippi. It's well known to us in uh, history for a lot of reasons, battles that were fought there and, uh, and so forth. Uh, an important Roman colony in the province of Macedonia where the Apostle Paul planted a church during New Testament times, Acts chapter 16, and we've uh, re- studied that recently. Named after Philip II, father of Alexander the Great. Philippi was located about nine miles from the Aegean coast and the uh, local port of Neapolis. The city was situated along the Gangites, I guess how you pronounce that, Gangites River, a tributary of the Strymon River. This uh, fertile location overlooked an inland plain to the east of Mount uh, Pangaeus or Mount Pangaeon. In fact, it's really a, an, an interesting bowl with, with mountains all the way around that it, that it sits in there. 
city was surrounded on other three sides by mountains. Inhabitants from Thassos, an island, settled Philippi around 360 BC. The city was inhabited for the duration of the, uh, the Roman period. Philippi's inhabitants included residents of Thracian Greek and Roman descent. Thracians were just east of Macedonia, uh, kind of in between. Uh, you have Greece. I'll put maps up here in a moment. But uh, Greeks to the south, Macedonians to the north, Thracians to the east, and then uh, you know Turkey was beyond that. Asia Minor was beyond that. Uh, in the first century, evidence uh, Roman influence is most prominent, whereas minimal Jewish influence is attested. And they dig and they dig and they try to find and they're not finding synagogues. And the Bible tells us there were no synagogues. That, that uh, they, 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 He found some folks down there by the river praying, but Paul's normal custom was to go to the synagogue, if there was one, and uh, get hated by a bunch of Jews and then turn to the Gentiles. That was kind of his routine in all of Paul's travels. Well, Philippi didn't have a synagogue. And in all likelihood, had there been Jews in Philippi, they would have been expelled when Nero expelled the, uh, the Jews from Rome in, uh, in that decree. So we'll discuss that as well. A majority of inscriptions from the first and second centuries are in Latin, served as an official language. However, Greek was widely spoken throughout the area, continued to serve as a commercial language. Because Philippi was a Roman colony, its citizens were granted the jus italicum, meaning they had uh, land and poll tax exemptions, authority to buy and sell property, protection by Roman law, and various other rights and privileges. And that becomes a big deal in, in Acts 16 when Paul and Silas are beaten without trial. And uh, they try to release them the next morning and Paul says, wait a minute, we're Roman citizens here. Because Philippi was a Roman colony, different from Thessalonica, different from all these other places. Different from Berea, different from Athens, different from Corinth. Uh, you know, cities that were conquered cities. Uh, Philippi was a Roman colony. Roman citizens living there in Philippi. So keep in mind, what is the book of the New Testament where Paul says, our citizenship is in heaven, right? From which we eagerly await for a Savior. He makes a big deal about the heavenly citizenship, and he does so to the Philippian believers in Philippi. And, uh, and I like that. Um, the citizens of Philippi thus benefited from the city status as a Roman colony and provincial municipality. Romans held a virtual monopoly within the imperial government of Philippi, and the civic administration was typically Roman. Um, center of worship for various deities. Early settlers introduced the cults of the Thracian god Liber Pater and uh, the goddess Bendis, as well as the Thracian writer. Herodotus mentions a Thracian oracle, of Dionysus at Mount Pangaeus. Extant remains show evidence of cults of the Anatolian Sabeel. All right, and that's kind of interesting too because that's the queen of heaven, uh, virgin mother goddess that uh, we get from Babylon and from other things we'll see uh, next week in uh, Jeremiah 44. Uh, worship the Egyptian gods Isis and Osiris as well as the Greek and Roman deities. Hero shrines and emperor worship also took root in Philippi. In the pre-Macedonian and Macedonian eras, Philippi's prosperity was largely dependent upon the neighboring gold mines. And that's why the, uh, the inhabitants of Thassos, they built the colony there because of the abundant gold mines that were available. And uh, Philip looked at that and said, well, you don't need that, I need that. <laughs> so Philip led the Macedonians over there and uh, 
conquered the, uh, the uh, Thassos uh, uh, colonizers, and then renamed the place after himself. And uh, it's you know humble thing to do. And fortified it, uh, defended it, and uh, became Macedonian until uh, the Romans took it. Uh, but the gold mines were pretty legendary. Uh, enormous deposits of gold were discovered in the vicinity. Strabo distinguishes those mines nearer Philippi from those of Mount Pangaeus. Later on, because of its location along the Via Ignatia, and we'll show you that on the map, the great eastern highway that uh, crossed that uh, peninsula there, a key military and commercial road completed in 130 BC. Philippi served as an important stopover for trade and transport. The Via Ignatia stretched from Byzantium to the Adriatic coast. From there, travelers could sail to Italy. And that is the fact that that road was there is huge because we have the, uh, the travel logs from Strabo and from uh, when, uh, when Ignatius, uh, when, when uh, others were, were, had to make that journey, we have their travel logs. We have their itineraries that are spelled out. How many days did it take them to make it from Philippi to Rome, for example? That becomes important in Philippian studies because when we get to chapter 2, there's a lot of back and forth in that chapter. And when you, when you start tracking all the back and forth in that chapter, you start to realize that Rome as a possibility gets less and less and less possible. Okay, And some even view it as, a, as an absolute defeater for the Roman hypothesis because it's just too many miles to cover in too little time for a sick guy like Epaphroditus to make that, to make that trip. We'll talk about that. Um, in spite of this commercial importance, most of the colony's residents likely lived in agrarian rural settlements. Barrel inscriptions frequently described the deceased as villagers. And yeah, it was uh, well watered and they had a lot of farmland. And, and keeping in mind, for most of human history, it was the, the primary uh, labor force was designed to feed everybody else. All right. And, and so. Uh, it's not like today when, you know, 3% of our population can feed the other 97%. Uh, it, it was extraordinary in the ancient world. Up until modern times, uh, 80, 90% of your population was required to feed the, uh, the leisure class, if you will. But of course, when you got slaves, hey. Um, all right. Thracians worked the gold mines near Philippi until 360, 359. Settlers from the island of Thassos settled at the site. Uh, Kalastratos was an exiled Athenian politician. He himself wasn't even from Thassos, but he provided the leadership they needed to engage in this. Uh, he led the Thassians. Because of the many springs and streams in the area, they originally called the settlement Grenides, stemming from the Greek word for fountains or springs. Okay. And that's another puzzle too. Sometimes we have, how many places are called hot springs? Okay. How many places are called, uh, you know, bent tree or, I mean, I mean, just, you get a geographical thing and then there's a lot of places that are named that, you know, Nicopolis is a, a city of victory. Well, how many wars were fought and a victory was fought and they just name it that there's a lot of Nicopolises. There's a lot of Antiochs. There's a lot of, you know, um, places named that have multiple, uh, the, the names repeated this way. Location was also apparently known as Datum or Dayton, in, or Daton, I guess, in, in Strabo. According to Herodotus, Thracians were active in the Pangaeon region during the time of Xerxes. And so, remember, the Persians were trying to invade through here and trying to, to attack the Greeks. 
And they did attack the Greeks repeatedly. Um, the residents of Crenides asked King Philip for Macedonian assistance against Thracian aggression. So uh, Philip said, yeah, I'll help. <laughs> you know, always eager to help and grab what you can. Philip seized the site and the neighboring mines in the 350s BC. He enlarged the settlement, fortified the town with a city wall, drained the adjacent swamps. Philip then brought in Macedonians to guard the gold deposits, and he renamed the settlement in honor of himself. Treated as a free city and garnered 1,000 talents annually from its mines. That's a lot of gold. That is a tremendous amount of gold. Um, this wealth enabled Philip to enlarge his army and to support his conquests. And of course, he died before he could do as much as he wanted, but Alexander, his son, uh, spent, the, spent the money wisely. All right. Uh, the Romans conquered the region in 168 or 167, and they placed Philippi within the first district of the newly formed Roman provinces, a province of Macedonia. In fact, not only did they make a, a province out of it, but they, they divided it into districts, and Philippi became the first district. Okay? Now, it would later change, and, and in subsequent years, it would later, um, the Thessalonica became the capital. Uh, but uh, still, as, a, as the first district in sequence, uh, they still even years later called themselves the first district of the Macedonians, even uh, after they had kind of faded to, uh, to Thessalonica's prominence. But that's interesting too, because that term comes to us in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 20, when Paul departed Ephesus and he traveled to Macedonia. And then we're told, what are we told in, in Acts 20? Uh, when he had gone through those districts, when he had gone through those districts and we were left puzzled, well, what are those districts? Well, we understand those were the Roman districts of the Macedonian province. You recall what I'm talking about there? Um, Acts chapter 20 and verse 2. When he had gone through those districts and had given them much exhortation, he came to Greece. Maybe the most famous thing about the Romans in Philippi was the battle uh, in the Civil War here. Um, the four regions were reunited in 148 BC, and Thessalonica became the seat of government for all Macedonia. All right, forces loyal to Mark Antony and Octavian defeated the armies of Brutus and Cassius at the Battle of Philippi in 42 BC. And so this is the warfare that followed, the Civil War that followed the assassination of Julius Caesar. And so um, the great liberators, the great heroes, they thought they would be uh, Brutus uh, and his conspiracy. They thought that, that uh, all of Rome would just march to their cause because uh, they were the heroes, right? They had thrown down the dictator. They were handing the republic back to the republic, all right? Well, no, uh, Octavian and Mark Antony didn't see it that way. And, and uh, anyway, the civil war that followed was decided at Philippi. The Battle of Philippi in 42 BC, two distinct battles, fought just to the west of the city, was a major turning point in the transition from Roman Republic to the establishment of an empire. The poet Horace fought in this conflict. You can read about it if you want to read Horace. And uh, Brutus and Cassius committed suicide after the loss. Antony subsequently settled veterans in Philippi. By the way, Mark Anthony, what's the most famous thing about Mark Anthony? No, more famous than Cleopatra? Hmm? No, evidently not. Okay. He was born on January 14th. Just saying. All right. And yeah, Cleopatra, gotcha. All right, where was I? 
Brutus and Cassius committed suicide after the loss. So Anthony subsequently settled veterans in Philippi. He enlarged the city, reinforced the city wall, formed a Roman colony that included Neapolis, the port city, plus uh, these other places, Osseum, Apollonia, and so forth. After defeating Anthony at the Battle of Actium in 31 BC, so, you know, 11 years go by, yeah, you end up with a civil war, and then the winners, another war between the two winners, and then, you know, there can only be one, and it's Augustus. After defeating Anthony at the Battle of Actium, Octavian reformed the city as a, uh, reformed the city as a Roman colony, brought in as many as 500 more veterans. These included supporters of Anthony who were expelled from Italy. Octavian renamed the city Colonia Julia Philippensis after his predecessor Julius. Used to be thought that it was after the daughter, um, but we, we understand better now that they would adapt a masculine name with a feminine form uh, in their cities. And so it was not named after his daughter. It was named after his, uh, the dictator, Julius Caesar. All right. 27 BC, after Octavian's designation as Augustus, he renamed the city yet again, Colonia Julia Augusta Philippensis. But it's easier just to say Philippi. <laughs> to the saints at Philippi. Uh, then after Bible times... Um, there was a bishop named Porphyry, uh, attended the Council of Sardicia in, in 343. Um, may have also served as a Christian pilgrimage site. That is now definite. That it absolutely served as a Christian pilgrimage site. And, and guess what? Guess what it was a pilgrimage for? There was legends that the burial of Paul was in Philippi, not in Rome. It was a Christian pilgrimage site to the death place of the Apostle Paul that his execution was in Philippi, his execution was not in Rome. That the Roman church invented the Peter and Paul mythology to validate their own claims, but that his actual execution and his burial took place in Philippi rather than Rome. True or not, I can't tell you, but the pilgrimage is, uh, definitely was there in those early centuries. That it was a Christian pilgrimage site. Flourished until about 8600, then the Slavs came in. Um, in the 7th century, Bulgarians invaded in 812. Ottomans, those would be Turks, took the city in 1387. And uh, by the 16th century, only a small dispersed population occupied the site. Anyway, that's the history on it before and after Bible times. Uh, most of the rest of this I think we're going to be very familiar with because um, we've been doing this work already in recent weeks uh, the book of Acts describes Philippi as an important city, a polis, as well as a colonia. And many translations of Acts 16.12 describe Philippi as the leading city of the district of Macedonia. Recent scholarship has favored a suggestion of reading a city of the first district of Macedonia. And uh, that, of course, would uh, conform better to what we understand in the secular history. Um, because a leading city is a bit misleading. Thessalonica was really the leading city of the district of Macedonia. Around the year 49 or 50, I agree with that, during the reign of Claudius, the apostle Paul and his companions traveled there. Uh, of course, the night in jail. Established the first church on European soil. Three locations hold claim to the spot, and you know they sell tourist tickets, you know, I mean, they, they collect money taking Christians to, this is the spot by the riverbank where Paul first met Lydia, okay? And there's three different locations where they, uh, they tell you that. 
All right. I think we'll let the rest of that go. Of course, they learn that he's a Roman citizen. They ask him to leave town. The church plant, here's the Philippian jailer in his household. There's Lydia, reference there. All right, after leaving Philippi, Paul journeyed on to Amphipolis, Apollonia, Thessalonica, and Berea. Uh, We've read that already in Acts 17. Paul visited Philippi at least once more. Now keep that in mind. As we read through the book of Acts, as we read through the, the narrative there, even other clues that we have, like in 1 Timothy, Paul says, as I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus. So we have clues that Paul has come to Philippi at least once more, probably twice or three times more. Um, and I think the narrative in, in uh, Acts 20 is clear that he went to the north and then he went back around again. Those things become important for us because I, I think by the conclusion of this, um, point eight in the outline uh, of our introduction, we have clues in the book of Philippians that I think um, indicate that he's only been there once when he's writing them this letter. He's talking about when they saw him, back when they knew him, back when they knew Timothy, right? And, and all of those flashbacks, all of those rem, uh, reminiscences, all of the little uh, reminders that Paul gives point to a single visit, not multiple repeated visits. Certainly not multiple repeated visits from Timothy because the image they have of Timothy is a little kid. The image they have of Timothy was the child that served humbly his father. Okay? And so we have indications that Paul has only been to, to Philippi once at the time that he is writing this letter. So that becomes significant for us. While in prison, Paul wrote this book, the letter to the Philippian congregation with its overseers and deacons. We'll study that out at length. We'll study the episkopos vocabulary for the overseer, the diakonos vocabulary for the deacons. We'll show you the offices within the church, why we have overseers and deacons in this church, pattern after this. The letter to the Philippians is a warm personal letter, reflects the deep affection of the apostle had for the congregation. It's like the opposite of Corinthians. It's the opposite. of He's not rebuking them. He's not correcting them. He's not fixing their false doctrine. The the closest he comes, uh, there's a couple of women in the church that aren't getting along, and they've got to deal with that. Yodi and Seneki, they've got to get along. Um, Otherwise, there's, uh, it's all positive in uh, what he's encouraging. Maybe their prayer life isn't what it's supposed to be, so he urges them to improve that. But um, it's more, uh, those are more inferences than direct rebukes as, as it goes. Scholars debate whether Paul wrote the letter from an Ephesian, Caesarean, or Roman in prison. Uh, if written from Rome, the common traditional view would have composed the letter around 61 or 62. Also, read the journals, read the debates, you wouldn't believe the back and forth that goes with, uh, uh, you know, why is it in this order? Why is it Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians? Why was, and why is it put in that order in our Bibles if Philippians, Colossians, Ephesians is, is a better chronological order? Why, why were they ordered that way in the, uh, in the New Testament? So questions that we can address later. Uh, let's see. Because Philippi was a Roman colony, its residents often emphasized their Roman loyalties and privileges. The book of Philippians is Paul's only letter that uses the language of civil or political identity. 
In Philippians 1.27, Paul exhorts the recipients to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. And to live, polituste, polituste, to live as a citizen, to live as a citizen. Okay, it's not zao, it's not other verbs for living. It's not, uh, it's, it's polituste, to live as a citizen in a manner worthy of the gospel. And in Philippians 3.20, he reminds them that their polituma, their politics, their citizenship is in heaven. The letter express, excludes, exudes, I'm sorry, exudes Paul's joy, repeatedly encourages the Philippians towards unity, warns them of false teaching, thanks them for their financial support. By the way, thanks for the support is more than just a, a passing reference. I think it's vital in pinpointing the authorship, all right, and pinpointing the, the date and the setting of the authorship. When could they give? When could they not give? When was their budget tight? When was their budget not tight? Uh, when did they have their annual business meeting and, and the treasury report that said uh, it's kind of a thin year this year, we can't send anything to the Apostle Paul? And when did they have a treasury report that said, man, banner year, we're going to support Paul, we're going to support Timothy, we're going to send a monster fund to Jerusalem, all right? Because they had, they had a, a business meeting like that with PowerPoint and slides and photocopied uh, financial statements. All right. By the way, I hope everyone can stick around today at 12.15 for, uh, for our annual meeting. All right. Tensions and hardships mirrored within their letter may reflect social tensions and economic difficulty. Eh, how do you know? It, it, there's, no, there's not a clue in chapter 3 why Yodi and Seneca couldn't get together. It could be anything under the sun. It may have nothing to do with social and economic difficulties within the larger community of, of Philippi. It could have been just something intensely personal and female. Who knows? Whatever caused those two women to not get along. So uh, Paul called upon them to live in harmony, and he summoned the assistance of Clement. And we'll deal with that in Philippians 4. The apostle affirms, so w which Clement is that? Wait a minute. Could that be the famous Clement? Which Clement is that? The apostle affirms that the women labored with him in spreading the gospel and uh, so forth. Then we'll, uh, we'll learn more about Epaphroditus as well. Here's a, here's a hero. Came from Philippi as an apostle with funds and uh, nearly died to, uh, to do that. From Paul's letters, we learn that the Macedonians supported him in ministry and took part in his fundraising for the believers in Jerusalem. Although he had been shamefully treated in Philippi, he continued to see the fruit of his ministry in that city. All right. In the first part of the second century, Ignatius of Antioch pa uh, passed through Philippi while being transported in martyrdom to Rome. And like I say, this is useful. It's extremely useful for us. It's one of the best known of the church fathers, one of the best known, uh, and, and the, the things that he wrote, he wrote seven letters, and, and these things uh, are useful for us in our linguistic studies, our New Testament studies. But, and also the, uh, the itinerary that's provided shows us a, a good time frame for these kind of uh, journeys. After his departure, the Philippian church sent a letter to Polycarp of Smyrna, and Polycarp replied with his own epistle to the Philippians. And uh, that letter discusses the theme of righteousness, addresses the case of a fallen elder named Valens, exhorts the recipients towards forgiveness, and warns of false teaching. 
Polycarp also sent along any Ignatian letters he had in his possession, as the Philippians had requested. Polycarp addressed the elders and the deacons. Now that's interesting because he's addressing the elders and deacons. What we have here in Philippians 1.1 is the overseers and the deacons. And so we, we recognize that we have that tandem, we have that interchange between the elders and the overseers, that we have related but not uh, interchangeable, related but not synonymous expressions. And by the second century, the, uh, the idea of elders, plural, is what had taken hold and the overseers had then been diminished. The term had been diminished to a single overseer, one episkopos, one overseer who was modeled after the Roman politics, who was uh, granted as the bishop of a particular town as opposed to, you know, an elder in a local church. So some of those studies, I think, are, are fun to deal with also. So Polycarp addressed the elders and deacons as well as exhorting the widows in various other congregational groups. Widows were viewed not really as an office, but simply as a, as, a, as a role, as a segment within the flock, that widows had a role towards the younger women, which I think we acknowledge as well today from 1 Timothy chapter 5. He praised the Philippians for their firm faith and for the loving assistance of Ignatius. All right, if you want extra biblical evidence... Um, these are the uh, historians that, uh, that mentioned Philippi, uh, Diodorus Seculus, Strabo, Pliny, Diocassius, Appian, Plutarch. They all reference Philippi. You can read Brutus and his suicide there in uh, Plutarch. Other instances can be found in these guys, uh, Valeus, Paterculus, uh, Lucian, Tacitus, and Josephus. Pausanias calls Philippi the youngest city in Macedonia, I think he was being um, uh, sar uh, sarcastic. I think he was being, um, I'm not sure what he was being. I, I, I think he liked a little dig at the Macedonians uh, related to um, himself. Because Greeks had an ancient history, right? Athens had an ancient history. Corinth had an ancient history. The Greeks had been around for a long, long time. And as far as they were concerned, you know, something that was established in the 3rd century B.C. or something as, as young as Philip II was, was pretty modern, was pretty recent. All right, then uh, what they've been doing archaeologically and what they've dug up and artifacts they found and aspects there. Workers uh, repaired the Via Ignatia. You can see parts of the road there to this day. Um, and during the reigns of Trajan and Hadrian, after New Testament times, uh, there was some maintenance done on the road there. Marcus Aurelius, likewise, after Bible times. All right, so there it is. And if you don't have access to the Lexham Bible Dictionary and you want a full, complete copy of this, let me know. We can, uh, we can PDF that and, uh, and get that to you. That's our history and background. Some maps, of course. I've been promising these. We've been looking at these for, for weeks now. Um, there in the top left corner, uh, Thessalonica to the west, Philippi to the east, uh, Berea just southwest of Thessalonica. That's the region of, of Macedonia, within the Roman province of Macedonia. Uh, east of Philippi, there's nothing marked there, but east of Philippi would be Thrace. The Thracian uh, Greeks, the Thracian people were there. And of course, Byzantium is uh, right there uh, at the 
the border of uh, Europe and Asia right there at the Dardanelles. And you've been there, actually. Some of you Navy guys maybe have been there, sailed through there in uh, different ports of call at uh, Istanbul. All right, so uh, Paul's second missionary journey with Timothy. With Timothy, they crossed from Troas across to Philippi. Uh, This is where Paul and Silas were jailed. Why was Timothy not jailed? Well, he's just a kid. I mean, who, who puts a kid in jail? Paul and Silas are obviously the troublemakers. They're obviously the preachers and, and so forth. But the Philippians saw Timothy serving Paul. And that gets mentioned here in Philippians chapter 2. And then, of course, Thessalonica, Berea, and the remainder of that second missionary journey. Third missionary journey, as we've been discussing it, um, I prefer to remove this segment, and I don't even count that as part of the third missionary journey. That was Paul relocating his headquarters from Antioch to Ephesus. And then likewise, this segment here, I don't include that in the third missionary journey. That was his uh, uh, voyage to Jerusalem. The missionary journey is this one that starts and ends at Ephesus. Technically, it ends at Miletus because he didn't want to go to Ephesus. He brought the elders to himself third missionary journey there, which included a second and third visit to Philippi, plus these districts, including all the way over here to Elycrium. He confesses in Romans that he had made it as far as Elycrium before uh, he spent the winter in in Corinth and wrote the book of Romans. So we have the material there. Now this, by the way, I think is huge because this shows us the, uh, the ease of travel from Philippi to Ephesus and the back and forth that we're going to read about in uh, chapter 2 in particular is uh, much more feasible from Ephesus. And some people think it's not at all feasible at all from Rome, not for the number of trips we're talking about. So uh, we'll deal with that as well. All right, so there's your maps. Point six is the Philippians travel log. So in the two minutes, I have, three minutes I have remaining, let's look at this. Philippians 2. And really, um, I prefer to read verses 25 through 30 and then back up to read verses 19 through 24. And here's why. I call this the Philippians travel log. The past travels of Epaphroditus, the immediate travels of Timothy, the subsequent travels of Epaphroditus, and the ultimately intended travels of Paul. They're all delineated right here in these verses, and they're spelled out in this way. And if we're not careful, particularly modern readers just blow it off and don't really pay attention to everything that's being said here, because this requires travel for all of this news to, uh, to work its way to these places. So Philippians 2.19, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send out, this is just a real quick preview. We'll come back and spend more time on this Wednesday night. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly. So, all right, so what's that involve? He's not going to go hop on a Southwest Airlines flight and pop over to Philippi. Okay, he's going he's gonna to travel by foot or by sail, by boat or, or by walking. And we're talking, it's going to take him five to six days. Um, if, if he's coming from Ephesus, okay? It's going to take weeks if he's coming from Rome or Caesarea. 
uh, so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. What does that mean? Timothy's going to get to Philippi, he's going to pull out a cell phone, he's going to send him a quick text and say, they're all cool, we're good, okay? And Paul get the text on a cell phone and go, oh, cool, they're, they're fine, okay? It's not going to happen. If they had texting back then, he wouldn't have to send Timothy, he'd just text the pastor that's there, he'd text the jailer or the pastor, whoever's there, and say, hey, everything going all right? But he, he said, Timothy has to travel there, and then the news that Timothy sends back, either personally or by the hand of a messenger, someone's got to walk back. Because if a scroll is sent, what does that mean? Someone's carrying that scroll. The, the scroll doesn't just walk by itself. There are theories that early Christians had access to the Roman mail network. Those theories are hogwash, Okay as far as the, even the Romans themselves taking advantage of the Roman mail network was not uh, always reliable, and they typically would dispatch their own couriers to, uh, to carry correspondence to the various places. The idea that Timothy and Epaphroditus could travel as Roman couriers on Roman roads covering 50 miles a day is, is absolutely uh, ludicrous. They're walking on their feet, and 15 miles is a good day. Because they got to stop, they got to eat, they got to hunt, they got to forage for food, they got to cook something, they got to they got to do something. So, fifteen miles is a good day walking to Philippi. All right. Well, we'll pick up on this because there are so many more back and forth stories that are found here in these verses that when you uh, when you read it for what it's really saying, it, it grabs your attention and is a part of the uh, part of the background here before we can uh, proceed. Thank you, Father, for your faithfulness. Thank you for this day. Thank you for your grace provision that has a, a new computer on the way, Father. And uh, just thank you for all that you do to keep the ministry up and running here at Austin Bible Church. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.